United States v. Bergdahl. Mr. Fidel, are you ready to argue? I am, Your Honor. Please proceed. Chief Judge Stuckey, and may it please the Court, may I reserve five minutes? Five minutes is reserved. Granted. I've been involved with military justice for over 50 years. I've studied it closely, I've written about it, and I've taught it. In my opinion, this is the most important case ever to have come before this Court. No, this is not a capital case. In fact, it's a case that could only even be here because it involves a punitive discharge. It's also a case that should never have been brought given the longstanding policy against charging returned POWs for anything other than offenses committed in captivity. What makes this case important is that it goes to the heart of this Court's role as a bulwark against unlawful influence, a vice long recognized as the immortal enemy of military justice. I should say immortal enemy of military justice. This Court has seen many cases that have sounded in UCI. It has even seen one, Kelly, that involved the President. But it has never seen one in which both the Commander-in-Chief and the Chair of the Senate Armed Services Committee cast such a dark shadow over the administration of justice. Never before has a holder of either of those two high offices chosen to target a specific soldier facing specific charges as the President and the late Senator McCain have done in the case of Sergeant Paul Bergdahl. I want to stress three points. First, the government has the burden of proving beyond a reasonable doubt that a disinterested objective observer fully informed of the facts and circumstances would not harbor a significant doubt as to the fairness of the process and that an undue strain has not been placed on the military justice system. The government has not carried that burden. The tank with which Senator McCain and the President suspected this case is both intolerable and indelible. Second, elected officials will continue to meddle in court-martial for political reasons unless this Court sends a message to determine us to achieve deterrence. Court-martial must never again be a plaything for politicians. Third, the remedy must fit the violation. Here, the UCI is intentional, accused-specific, malevolent, uncured, and emanating from the highest level. Senator McCain was warned by the Army and the Staff General Counsel not to meddle. The President was put on notice by one of the military judges' rulings. His advisors were in direct contact with trial counsel about UCI, and the sham statements on military justice was issued by his press office. Nonetheless, on they went, Senator McCain and the President, indifferent to the damage they were doing to public confidence in the military justice system. The charges should be dismissed with prejudice. Thank you, Mr. Fidel. And I will go first. My initial question has to do with Senator McCain. Senator McCain made two statements. One was what was essentially a criticism of foreign policy. I wouldn't have cut this deal to trade these bad guys for Bergeron. The other was a statement that if Bergeron got a sentence of no punishment, the staff would hold a hearing. With respect to the first statement, 
that's nothing more than a criticism of foreign policy. It says nothing about um, any potential punishment or disciplinary action. Uh, it's simply a criticism of foreign policy. They made a bad deal. With respect to the second point, Senator McCain did nothing more, than, it seems to me, than state that the committee would exercise its constitutional responsibility of oversight over the military justice system. Holding a hearing is a legitimate way of doing that. It may not be pleasant if you are the uh, person testifying at the hearing, but how are either of those unlawful influence? Uh, thank you, Chief Judge. Uh, first of all, uh, Senator McCain's involvement was, uh, went beyond the two uh, items that you mentioned. Uh, as the record indicates, uh, thanks to the Freedom of Information Act and other discoveries that we obtained, uh, there was a continuing uh, uh, fire of uh, emails and phone calls back and forth between uh, the Army and his staff. Senator McCain wanted to make statements. He was told not to meddle in this case. The Army said, we'll do a curative statement to you. Uh, the, the, the staff and the senator uh, never took the Army up on that. Uh, Senator McCain called uh, Sergeant Bergdahl a deserter before any charges had been brought. Uh, and the idea that there was no chilling effect as a result, or, or that a, a disinterested uh, objective observer would not be concerned about the fact that Senator McCain threatened to hold the hearing if Sergeant Bergdahl weren't punished. I think that's quite clear, Your Honor, that uh, that is uh, as much uh, unlawful congressional influence as has ever happened. That is a threat to have an unpleasant exercise in the case, in case the outcome of this particular proceeding uh, wasn't to his satisfaction, and that is intolerable. Thank you. Mr. Judge Rod. Yeah, Mr. Bell, I have, I have two questions to ask you. One um, is your brief, and, and today you've repeatedly noted um, or asserted that there's, that, that, that there's this um, policy for returning POWs um, that they're not disabled in <laughs> Um, that they won't be charged or tried except for things that they did while they were POWs. So one question I have is where do I find that policy or what are you relying on when you, when you say it? And then the second question I have is with respect to Senator McCain, is your argument that his meddling via the staff um, affected the determination to send it to a general court-martial that could judge a dishonorable discharge and meaningful punishment or is it something else? Uh, good morning, Your Honor. Uh, may I take those in reverse order? Sure. The, uh, uh, the, uh, this is an apparent UCI case, uh, so the only question is whether there is uh, whether there's a relevance, a kind of nexus between what we're complaining about and the administration of justice. Uh, so we don't have to uh, uh, show that it actually had any particular effect. That's the part of the forest we're in. And I think that is the, the uh, most direct answer to your second question. As to the first question, we have relied extensively and uh, for a long time in this litigation on the official Office of the Secretary of Defense history of the uh, uh, Vietnam War with respect to uh, POWs. And this is, I think, a book called The Long Road Home. It's cited in our brief. Uh, the government has never uh, 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 contested 
in any way our submission on this. They've said, well, if that policy doesn't apply, this is like other cases, but they've never quarreled in any way with our assertion. I'm holding in my hand a hint of the list with the – say what, ma'am? No, so with respect to the second question that I answered first, and I understand that this is an apparent UCI case, but don't you still have to say that it would appear to a member of the general public that the meddling via the staff had some results? No, it doesn't, Your Honor. All it has to do is raise a question in the mind of a reasonable disinterested observer aware of the fully informed of all the facts and circumstances, and to consider that a threat of a congressional hearing made before the main event in the litigation will result if the outcome isn't to the liking of a particular member of the Senate, in fact, a senior member of the Senate, will lead to a hearing at which people whose futures, professional futures, will be subject to potential adverse effects through the confirmation process. That's enough of a connection. Remember, the court has repeatedly said that the threshold is a low threshold, and we handily meet that. Thank you, Mr. Fidel. Judge Olson. Good morning, Mr. Fidel. I just want to follow up on the question that was posed by Judge Ryan in regard to the prosecution of returning POWs. I'm curious about how you view the court-martial of Sergeant Charles Robert Jenkins fitting into your argument. Jenkins was stationed with the U.S. Army in South Korea. He walked across the DMZ into North Korea. He said he was starved, beaten, and mentally tortured over the years. But then when the Army got its hands on Sergeant Jenkins in 2004, they court-martialed him for desertion, and he was sentenced to a dishonorable discharge and 30 days in prison. I'm just wondering, under that scenario, should an objective, disinterested observer conclude that Sergeant Jenkins and Sergeant Bergdahl were similarly situated and were treated in a similar manner? Thank you very much, Your Honor. To respond both to your question, Your Honor, and the first of Judge Ryan's questions, there is an information paper prepared by Colonel Dick Jackson, which is page A219, which I think was an attachment to the investigation in this case. Thanks for your response to your honor. I don't think it's in the record, but let's not stop at that point. The fact is that the individual that you're referring to seems to have been a defector rather than a deserter. There is a difference. And in addition, he was a person who had actively collaborated with the North Korean authorities. He lived the life of Riley in North Korea. He made propaganda videos for North Korea. I think the two cases are entirely dissimilar. If I still have any time left, Chief, could I ask a question? You do. So Senator McCain began rattling his sword against Sergeant Bergdahl in a political article in June 2014. From the perspective of an objective, disinterested observer, what should they make of the fact that 
the Army didn't seem too spooked by that because it took them 10 months to prefer charges against Sergeant Bergdahl. Well, uh, thank you, Your Honor. Uh, first of all, Rome wasn't built in a day, and uh, it does take time, uh, even, even for the Army to, uh, uh, to move. It's like moving an aircraft carrier, I imagine, uh, at times. But uh, the, the passage of time, I think, uh, is, is not the point. If you look at the timeline, Your Honor, that was attached to our, I think, our main brief, uh, uh, it, 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 there was a constant interaction between the Senate Armed Services Committee's general counsel and, uh, and the Army's uh, congressional and legislative liaison. They wanted to know everything. When was, when was there going to be an announcement? What was happening? Uh, give us a briefing. Uh, this is the kind of micromanagement. That's fine if you're talking about the budget. It's not fine when you're talking about the administration of justice in a particular case. Congress hasn't been involved in the retail administration of justice since the Articles of Confederation. Thank you, Mr. Fidel. Judge Sparks. Uh, thank you, Chief Judge. Uh, good morning, Mr. Fidel. Good morning, Your Honor. Uh, Mr. Fidel, I... I want to ask about the um, the lower court's dissenting judge, uh, in his opinion. And in his opinion, he suggested that the appropriate remedy in this case might be simply disapproval or reversal of the dishonorable discharge. In your brief, you seem to think that at least gives the impression that you do not believe that to be an insufficient, you do not believe that to be a sufficient limit. Can you explain why you, you don't see the dissenting judge's proposed resolution of, at least from his point of view, um, as a, um, as, as an, as a sufficient remedy in this case, should the court find, uh, in your favor? Right, Your Honor. Uh, the answer to that question, uh, requires uh, an appreciation of the various aspects of UCI that we chronicled uh, in the case. All Judge Ewing, uh, and uh, we were grateful for his dissent, it was a partial dissent, uh, all Judge Ewing uh, thought merited that relief, that mainly uh, disapproving the punitive discharge, uh, was the traitor, uh, excuse me, was the um, uh, the statement of uh, uh, President Trump faulting the military judge, uh, saying that was a complete and total disgrace to the nation and to the military. Uh, there, uh, judge Ewing went along with the majority on a host of other aspects, such as uh, the statement that uh, President Trump made in the Rose Garden, ratifying all of his pre-inaugural comments. He, uh, judge Ewing, like the majority, thought there was nothing wrong and used the item with anything uh, Secretary, uh, Senator McCain had said or done. Uh, Judge uh, uh, Ewing did not address the uh, traitor tweet about which we complained while the appeal was pending. My point is that Judge Ewing, uh, in our view, uh, did not take into full account all of the other elements of unlawful command influence to which we referred. As a result, the basis on which he calculated what relief should be uh, accorded was incomplete. And in our view, both whether you accept his position or you accept the majority's position,
position, uh, both there are errors in their both rejection of our claims, uh, whether at the threshold or on the theory that the government actually carried its burden of proof. The consequence is that you have to rewrite the balance for what is cumulative in this record. And only once you have a lodestar, a baseline, for all of the UCI can you then evaluate whether from the majority's perspective or Judge Ewing's more generous perspective what relief should be granted. So that's a long-winded answer to your question, Your Honor. No, I, and I appreciate it. Chief Judge, I have, I have nothing further. Judge Mayes. Yes, good morning, Mr. Fidel. Good morning, Your Honor. Um, I have three questions uh, that concern Rule for Court Martial 104A1. Um, this is the rule, of course, that says that no convening authority or commander can censure or reprimand uh, the court martial. Um, obviously, the language in RCM 104A1 is different from that in Article 37A. But my first question is, shouldn't we find that the words in this case or something to that effect are implied in RCM 104A1 such that it wouldn't, it would be no convening authority or commander in this case or concerning this case as opposed to no convening authority or commander anywhere? Uh, no, excuse me. Uh, no, Your Honor, and uh, the answer is there are two reasons for that. Uh, the first is that uh, the Army Court sided with us on that issue, and the government did not cross-petition or cross-certify uh, the, the case. Therefore, the law of the case governs that. The court, uh, I think, is, is barred by uh, standing uh, jurisprudence from uh, embracing a position that uh, the government did not uh, did not advance, uh, did not take up here. Uh, the second thing is that the, uh, the text of Article Rule RCM 4A1, uh, that is the operative document. That's what's in the executive order, and I don't think it's, uh, uh, it would be respectful of the executive uh, authority of the president as commander-in-chief and under Rule uh, Article 36 to read words in simply on that there. And in fact, uh, the, uh, the rule uh, has morphed over time, and since 1968 or 69, it's been, uh, it, it, it has not been limited to cases in which the offending official is the convening authority. Thank you. Um, my second question is, does the president have authority to create an RCM 104A1, a rule that's different from the rule in Article 37A? In other words, does he have the authority to create a broader rule? Um, I seem to recall an article uh, that deals at great length. Uh, there, are, there are actually two articles that deal with the subject of the president's power under Article 36, and I think the authors of those are the individuals that are having this conversation right now. Uh, in my opinion, the president's authority as commander-in-chief and under Article 36 is broad enough that he can impose a uh, a requirement in addition to or more restrictive than the provisions that uh, in Article 37. Uh, nothing prevents Congress from uh, conferring greater rights, for example, than the Constitution requires, and nothing uh, prevents uh, the president as commander-in-chief and under Article 36 from providing greater protection than uh, the statute provides. Okay, and my last question, if I have time, uh, concerns uh, the Boyd case. Uh, 
approximately five minutes left, and Mr. Fidel may continue to argue, and now any judge may jump in with any question he has, and of course that includes you, Judge Mays. Mr. Fidel. Yes, thank you, Chief Judge. I think this is a case that provides the court a very welcome opportunity to state some neutral principles for relief in UCI cases. Here's my catalog. The relief should be meaningful. It should reflect the totality of the circumstances. It should be proportional to the UCI. For example, it should take into account whether the UCI is egregious or whether it has the capacity to do catastrophic mischief. That's from the Chicago case in the Navy court. It should take into account the seniority of the actors. You could have, for example, a presumption of dismissal with prejudice any time there's presidential UCI for obvious reasons. Counsel, can I interrupt you for a moment? Of course. With respect to the last piece that you complained of, which is the President's comment about the sentence that was received, I wonder how you respond to these points, which is, one, your client specifically asked for a dishonorable discharge and acknowledged that he understood everything that came along with it. In his post-trial matters, he did not request clemency in terms of a sentence reduction, and he also did not avail himself of the opportunity to withdraw his plea, though the judge afforded him that opportunity. So in light of those three factors, where is the prejudice? Your Honor, first of all, with respect to whether he requested clemency, unfortunately the decisions of the Army Court and our opposing counsel's brief do not accurately reflect the post-trial submissions. And what I could do is ask if you would please to take a careful look at our post-trial submission, because what we said was that we wanted the period for post-trial submissions told until there was a proper convening authority. And our objection to General Abrams and his SJA was that they were both material witnesses and shouldn't be performing post-trial roles. They were material witnesses because they were engaged in exfoliation of evidence. The Court didn't grant review on that. In fact, I don't think we asked the Court to grant review on that. But that's what the papers reveal. So it wasn't a question of not requesting clemency. We deferred any request for specific clemency because we felt that we needed to have a convening authority who was not disqualified. With respect to whether Sergeant Bergdahl had an opportunity to withdraw his plea, that's not the point. That has to be taken into account in the overall context. And if I can, that's related to the question that I think you also asked. Didn't he get the sentence that he asked for? If you take a careful look at the required colloquy, which appears on pages 2696 and 2697 of the record, the required colloquy makes it clear that his desire was to be discharged from the service with either a BCD or a DD, quote, if, as your counsel indicated, it will preclude you from going to confinement. The 
trial counsel has sought a shocking 14-year sentence. And I will, it's an understatement for me to say that Sergeant Berthold was suffering from deep and justifiable anxiety about any further incarceration following the five years that he's already spent in brutal captivity, including the psychological impact of confinement. I think those things have to be taken into account. He certainly, I think that you have to be a little granular about what actually happened during the plea inquiry. Now, the final point, and this is related to your point, Your Honor, maybe not in so many words. One of the factors is there shouldn't be a windfall, and the government has suggested that it would be a windfall for there to be a dismissal with prejudice in this case. There is absolutely no windfall here. As Judge Ewing pointed out at pages 28 and 29, there's no windfall given the recommendations that were made by the Article 32 officer and Major General Dahl, and also the fact that Sergeant Berthold has served five years in brutal captivity, followed by six years in limbo while this case was investigated and adjudicated. He's effectively lost more than a decade of his life. His nationwide public vilification has indelibly tarred him as a traitor. So the notion that any of this amounts to a windfall if you dismiss with prejudice is, in my opinion, unwarranted. Counsel, your time has expired. You will have five minutes for rebuttal. Counsel for the government. Yes, Your Honor. Thank you for choosing to remember this court and to please the court. I'm Captain Allison Riley, and I represent the government in this case. This court should affirm the findings and sentences of the defendant. Counsel, could you speak a little closer to the mic? Yes, Your Honor. Thank you. This court should affirm the findings and sentences because an objective, disinterested observer would not harbor a significant doubt about the fitness of a Pell's court-martial just because of the comments of President and Senator McCain. This court should be hard-pressed to find a parent who is not aware. One, like in Simpson, the comments were neither indirectly nor directly communicated to the convening authority and judges in this case. In fact, neither the convening authority nor the military judge were even aware of the President's Rose Garden comment, and the Army court judge is not aware of the President's April 2019 tweet. Two, the speakers did not implicitly or explicitly threaten repercussions to the careers of those involved if their views were not adopted, unlike in Boyce. Three, a poet was convicted only of what he pled guilty to and received a sentence that he asked for, a sentence his counsel described as, quote, essential for the preservation of the integrity of the military justice system in light of the President's comment, and that could be found on JA page 512-514. Four, any perception that the actions of the convening authority and judges were the result of the comment were dispelled by the fact that these individuals supported their independence and dedication to the fairness of the Pell's court-martial through their actions and words. Incredible affirmations that his actions were the result of the exercise of his own independence and discretion, and that he was and would not be influenced by any outside force. His description of Senator McCain's comment is inappropriate. He stated that he referred the case after extensively reviewing the matters the Pell had submitted in response to the Article 32, but finding them to be unpersuasive, dispelled any notion that he had seemed to be influenced, along with his intent to further protect the Pell's court-martial by issuing the order regarding pretrial publicity. As for the military judge and appellate judges in this case, their decisions demonstrate no reason to question the presumption that they were not influenced in their independent duty to do justice. For example, the military judge, rather than accepting the President's campaign comments, described them as, quote, troubling, disappointing, and disturbing, 
and consider him as mitigation evidence during sentencing. He acquitted Pellon of the contested portion of the desertion charge and then spent seven hours deliberating on a sentence which was ultimately in accordance with what precisely Appellant asked for. The Army Court judges demonstrated their independence by thoroughly addressing Appellant's UCI allegations and repeatedly noting inaccuracies in the President's comments. The sentiments and actions of the convening authority and judges demonstrate that there was anything but a perceptible chill over them and accordingly this Court should find that the comments did not cause an intolerable strain on the public perception of the military justice system. Thank you, Counsel. My question is, this being an apparent UCI case in which one of the criteria is, does it put an intolerable strain on the system of military justice? I ask you, how can the kind of absolutely unprecedented comments made by the President, the Commander-in-Chief, about this case, about the judge, about sentence, about the merits of the case, not put an intolerable strain on the system? I direct your attention to the amicus brief filed by Judge Kastenberg, in which they basically say, basically argue, that there ain't no way this can't have that kind of effect regardless of the personal honesty or demeanor of those actually involved in the court martial. How can this not put, how can unprecedented action not put an intolerable strain on the system? Your Honor, when we're looking at what is the intolerable strain, we're looking at what is the effect, right? As this Court said, in voice, apparent UCI, it's not about knowledge, it's not about intent, it's all about the effect. And so when we're looking at the effect of this case, we need to look at the referral decision, the findings decision, the sentencing decision, the action decision, and look at each of those and the facts and circumstances. And I think that you look at all that, but it's more than that. It's how the system appears to the knowledgeable public. That's what I'm really asking. I take for granted that the persons involved in the administration of this case did their best and were not, as a matter of fact, influenced. The question is, what does this do to the image of the system? How does this not put an absolutely intolerable strain on it? Your Honor, I agree with you with your earlier comment that it's the perception of what is the reaction of the military justice system. And when we look at the reaction of the military justice system here, everyone did exactly what they were supposed to do. We have a military judge who exercised his independence and showed his independence by noting that these comments were disappointing, using those comments to appell on benefit as evidence in mitigation, offering him the opportunity to withdraw his plea. All of these signs that the individuals in the appellant's court-martial are doing everything they can to provide the appellant with a fair court-martial, and that is exactly what happened in this case. Thank you, Counsel. Judge Warren. Yes, Counsel, I have two questions. One, when the military judge 
adjudicated the first UCI motion, he concluded first that Senator McCain could not commit UCI because he wasn't on active duty, um, which I think um, the CCA got that right. But they also seem to suggest that, um, that UCI would be confined to those with command authority. And so that was another reason that they seemed to think that Senator McCain could not commit UCI. Do you agree that UCI is, commit, is, is confined to only those with command authority? I do not agree with that. I think okay. That's okay. Thank you. Um, my second question is this, is that, you know, we talked, you said that the, the thing is on effect, right, and a nexus between what is said and, and, and a particular court martial, right? So in this case, um, Senator McCain and, and the staff had nonstop discussions with um, the Army about Senator Bergdahl's case. You would, would agree with that? Yes, it appears so from the emails, Your Honor. Okay. And so why, and, and this is an actual question, so why would someone in the public not perceive that when the, when Major General Dahl and the preliminary hearing officer both recommended um, no, um, no, no discharge and no confinement, and at that time the government presented, um, say I think 132, presented no argument to contradict Major General Dahl's conclusion that no jail time was warranted. Why wouldn't an average person in the public believe that um, that the head of the Senate Armed Services Committee's interest in this case is what resulted in um, the committee authority sending it to a general court martial which could have judged a dishonorable discharge? Irrespective of the fact that the, that the person, the committee authority said it didn't have any impact on it. Your Honor, uh, um, so I'd like to address that in two parts. The first is addressing the emails, and then the second addressing the actual referral decision. So when we look at the emails, we see the discussions between um, the staff OGC and the Army OCLL. And those discussions are merely requests for information. We don't see any any pressure there of, you know, uh, you know, any expectation that there is going to be a certain decision. It's mere informational. And the Army is proactively... Um, in response to certain things that Senator McCain has said, you know, uh, making them aware of these are the risks that you are taking. And we, and they, at one point, said, we are doing everything that we can to protect the integrity of the military justice system. And, you know, if you were to go ahead and hold a hearing, um, perhaps that line might be crossed. And to note, uh, as far as my knowledge, a hearing was ever held, at least during appellant's court martial. Um, and so we look at that as evidence of, the military justice system is doing everything that it can to protect the integrity of a court martial. With regard to the um, community authority's referral decision, that's not a reflection of, of Senator McCain's desire for, uh, or suggestion that, that there should be confinement. First of all, we have the community authority saying that although he heard the comments, he believed that they were inappropriate. It did not consider them. We also should look at what the maximum punishment was for the offenses, uh, which two investigations found um, you know, have reason to believe that appellant committed. And that is a maximum punishment of confinement for life and a dishonorable discharge. In light of that, it, this referral decision was completely reasonable. And there are no other facts. Thank you, counsel. Judge Olson. Morning, Captain Raleigh. Morning, sir. At the outset of your argument this morning, you essentially stated that because President Trump's and Senator McCain's comments were not personally communicated to the key actors that there was no harm, no foul. That strikes me as a rather remarkable proposition. 
What if a commanding general or an incoming commanding general on a post publicly stated to the news media that a soldier who was pending court-martial was a dirty, rotten, no-good traitor? Would there be parents of UCI? Your Honor, I think as the facts change, circumstances can change. And so certainly what this court is concerned about is that, is that chilling effect um, by the words that are said. And so when we look at the case here, you know, particularly with regard to the day of sentencing tweet, and did that have a chilling effect on the convening authority and his, um, dis his uh, discretionary exercise under Article 60? And, and the answer to that is no. First of all, okay, I'm not quite clear how you're addressing my question to you. My question is, if you have a commanding general or an incoming commanding general who says not privately to the individual actors but public to, publicly to the news media that a soldier pending court-martial is a dirty, rotten, no-good traitor, would there be an appearance of UCI? Your Honor, there, there potentially could be. And I think, you know, if we look at former um, Chief Judge Baker's um, dissent in Hutchins, right, when we're analyzing this issue of whether these public... He goes over several factors, and that is, what is the intended audience? What are the words that are said? Are right. there... You're um, referring to a dissent from a judge who's no longer on the court? Yes, Your Honor. Okay. Um, I, I do believe that that provides helpful guidance. And, uh, you know, we can see that when we look at a case like Simpson, where we have senior leaders in the Army, like the Secretary, um, saying in a class of offenses um, that there could be um, no leniency or severe punishment. And so, so phrases like that, they've been said before, and in, in Simpson, this court has found that that was not apparent UCI for the reason that those comments were, were not directly communicated to those involved in, in, in the court-martial. And it's hard to believe, when we're looking at a current UCI and we're looking at what is the effect, it's hard to believe that there's going to be effect on the actors in the system if they've never even heard of the word. Thank you, counsel. Judge Sparks. Good morning, counsel. How are you? Good morning, sir. My uh, question, and I only have one, and it goes to uh, the language we have used in assessing when uh, apparent unlawful influence exists. And we talk about this objective, interested observer fully informed of all the facts and circumstances. And so my question is, how broadly are we to consider, quote, fact and imputed to this the disinterested observer. In other words, how much do we assume this interested, disinterested observer knows about military justice, the unlawful command influence doctrine, or jurisprudence, or concerns, or, or are we, do we view it very, very narrowly, only the specific narrow facts of this case? My understanding is that it's their knowledge of all the facts and circumstances, not necessarily their knowledge of the apparent UCI um, test. That is for us to determine from the perspective of that person, of, of whether the hypothetical person knowing all the facts and circumstances would have a significant doubt, not just a slight doubt, a significant doubt as what to the... Um, other than the facts, are they to consider, in your view? 
Your Honor, I think that things that are in the general knowledge, for example, it's general knowledge that judges apply the law. There's a presumption that they are unaffected by outside influences. Those presumptions. Okay. Thank you. Chief Judge, I have no further questions. Good morning, Captain Riley. Good morning, sir. My question is I'd like to hear the government's specific response to the points that Judge Ewing made in his separate concurrence and partial concurrence and partial dissent, specifically that a convening authority would have known that the President did not want him to grant any clemency, that he said nothing about this potential problem, and that there's really no possible way to send this back to a different convening authority, and therefore that the remedy should be to get rid of the punitive discharge. Your Honor, with respect to the convening authority's action, you know, we need to look at the timing of the day in sentencing tweet and the fact that there was seven months that elapsed. The fact that the tweet was directed at the military judge and the sentence itself not directed towards the action or the convening authority's exercise of the clemency authority. And I think that those facts, you know, lessen the chilling effect of those comments on the convening authority, in addition to his, you know, repeated incredible affirmations that his actions were his own, in addition to the statement on military justice where the President says, you will exercise your independent discretion, as well as the fact that he considered appellant's matters in which there was no formal request for clemency, and appellant's guilty plea and request for sentence, which is what he got. With respect to the remedy, the government disagrees with Judge Ewing that, you know, if there was an apparent UCI violation in this case, that dismissal was, well, I'm sorry, that the setting aside of the discharge is appropriate. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Counsel, you have approximately 13 minutes left. You may continue to argue, and judges may interrupt with questions as they see fit. Can I ask a question just before you get started, Counsel? Yes, Your Honor. Sure. So a lot of the comments that seem to have been made about Sergeant Berthold referred to him as a traitor and words of that nature. In I.O.'s report on page 3, he says, he or she says, there is almost unanimous agreement that Sergeant Berthold left O.P. Meds with a good, albeit misguided motive. Is that true? Your Honor, I think that to the extent that that's true, appellant has the opportunity during the sentencing proceedings to lay out factors in extenuation and mitigation for the sentencing authority to consider, you know, to reduce the sentence. But I also think, you know, an important point, you know, with regard to the President calling him a traitor, is that an objective disinterested observer would know that he is not, in fact, charged with treason. And so, you know, to the extent that it's political rhetoric, you know, the fact that he's being called a traitor, someone would know that the military judge knows how to apply the law 
Well, let, let, me ask you, let me ask you a different question. And this is, again, for my edification, because I wasn't, I haven't read the entire record of the trial. I wasn't at the trial. Um, so true or false, Sergeant Bergdahl not only was not charged with being a traitor, he, in fact, was not a traitor. He was a person that left his post without authority. Your Honor, that's my understanding of the record and the outcome of the investigation. Yes. Thank you. Uh, counsel. Going back, to the, going back to the traitor, um, if we assume our, our uh, as we used to call it, hostile, our reasonable man looking at this uh, whole sequence, um, I doubt that we assume that the person knows the constitutional uh, requirements for treason. Um, and, and the point is not, as, as I think I tried to make in my first question, the point is not whether, in fact, he was charged with treason under treason statutes, but what effect does this kind of political rhetoric, as you call it, have on the system? Um, I'm, I am astonished that that uh, we can just breeze by all of this and say, well, it didn't have any effect because everybody involved is an honest, good person and they all said it didn't have any effect. How can it not bring the system into disrepute? Your Honor, when we're looking at a current UCI, it, it, I think the central question is, Knowing the things that had been said, would we have reason to question the exercise of the discretion that the military justice actors have in the system? It's, it's the effect. Is that it's too narrow a question? Is Your that Honor, too narrow a question when you're gauging the political viability of the military justice system before the American public in a country that's a democratic republic, also a world power that maintains very large armed forces. Your Honor, this government's position that that's not too narrow. Um, you know, it's members of the military, we are supposed to be apolitical when we're conducting our duties. Um, and, and so to the extent that this is political rhetoric, this is how our system is built, that the president wears many hats. He wears a political hat, he wears a commander-in-chief hat. This is just how our system is built, and the system will crumble if um, if there's no um, leeway for that. Right? Not excusing the fact that that words words were said, right? And this court has cautioned against that that these leaders need to be careful what they say because of their potential effect on the system. But then, so what are, what are we to do? What are we to do when these two specific people, like when I'm not talking about. You know, Senator Grassley said something in court, or um, someone said something about just generally, like, you know, we, we need to, like, not let crime um, be rampant in our military, and we're going to come down hard on this. But, but instead, we have two persons that, by virtue of one of them being a retired person, so a person subject to the code under Article 37, and the other one being a convening authority under Article 22, and under one interpretation of... Um, RCM 104. 
Honor, there are parts of the system to the extent that, you know, Senator McCain, as chairman of the SAC, yes, he does have, you know, as part of the SAC legislative authority, the president as commander-in-chief does have certain authority. But I think that assertion, that appellant's assertion that by the mere position of that authority, you know, any words they speak automatically constitutes UCI because of the things that these people could do. I think that that's theoretical pressure. There's, you know, in order for UCI, there can't be speculation. So there's no evidence that, for example, the convening authority was before the SAC in nomination. There is no evidence that the convening authority or the military judge or anyone else in this case faced repercussions for their exercise of independent discretion. But if any of that were true, then we would be looking at actual UCI. Right? I mean, if they were facing actual repercussions or they were being actually pressured one person to another, that would constitute actual UCI. And no one's arguing that there was actual UCI. Yes. Yes, Your Honor. This is Judge Olson again. To build a little bit upon this line of questioning, and consistent with your brief, where you say that President Trump and Senator McCain were just engaging in political posturing, so their statements really didn't matter. So in your view, political sword rattling of this nature cannot result in the appearance of UCI? Your Honor, I think that blanket statement, it's not the assertion the government intended to make. With these facts and these circumstances, it did not constitute apparent UCI. I agree with the court's caution in past cases, like in Simpson, where those who wear many hats, like political hats, you know, should exercise caution in what they say. But never has this court ever said that those wearing, you know, those in positions of civilian leadership should never say anything. There's no such blanket rule. But, you know, to the extent that we look at the effect of those statements here on the convening authority, on the military judge, on the judges of the ACCA, there is no question, you know, when we look at their knowledge of the things that were said and the fact that they didn't even know some of these statements were made, there's no reason to question that their integrity was intact when they acted with their independent discretion in Appellant's case. So building on that point for a minute, where you're saying that political people in identified positions should be careful of what they say publicly about a pending court-martial, let's assume just for a minute, and it's just a hypothetical, that this court were to find that, in fact, there was an appearance of unlawful command influence. So then we would have to deal with the appropriate remedy. And your position for government is that dismissal with prejudice would be a drastic measure. But realistically, if we were to authorize a new court-martial, what are the real-world prospects that there would be no future tweets about this case, which would just plunge us back into the same appearance of UCI thicket that we're wrestling with right now? Your Honor, certainly there are no guarantees. But when, you know, should this court find apparent UCI, when crafting a remedy, it should look exactly for what Appellant asked for in his 1105 matters, and that is that the convening authority should have recused himself. And therefore, you know, with that remedy, the remedy here is a new action, should be dismissal with prejudice. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you, Counsel. That concludes argument in this case.
should there be a parent UCI that's found. You know, to say that either the findings of guilt or the sentence, including the dishonorable discharge, should be set aside, I think that that wouldn't foster confidence in the system, given that appellant has asked for those things. And that's a windfall. We're talking about the point in time of what the military judge did, what the convening authority did post-trial, et cetera. What about the convening authority's decision to refer this to a general court-martial where a dishonorable discharge could be a judge, whereas what was recommended by two people that had a lot of involvement with the facts and the cases of the Article 32 recommended a different disposition? So what if we were to find that it was that the average person in the public, aware of the status importance, aware of Senator McCain's influence, aware of his expressed interest in the case and his expressed displeasure of the notion of no punishment being given, as I believe he calls him a traitor, maybe he just calls him a deserter, that but for those things that they would be concerned that he would not have been sent to a trial where he could get a dishonorable discharge to begin with? No, I think that that requires a closer look at the Article 32 IO's report and the reason why he made that disposition recommendation. And that is because of the mitigation evidence that was presented at the 32, along with the fact that the evidence didn't present evidence of casualties. And I think that those two facts were facts that are presented to a sentencing court. What do we make of the fact that the government expressly chose not to put on evidence of casualties, even though the military judge, the IO, had questions about such things and they just basically decided not to do that? Your Honor, I can't speak for the government in why they made that decision, but those are things that a sentencing authority could consider. And when we're looking at that disposition, that referral decision, even if this case were referred to a special court martial not authorized to judge a discharge, appellants still would have faced some sort of punishment. And ultimately that is up to the sentencing authority. The convening authority is not the one who determined the punishment. Although, you know, certainly the referral decision can play a part in that. But ultimately when we look at the maximum punishment for the offense is confinement for life and a dishonorable discharge, certainly that in and of itself, you know, doesn't leave any question, you know, for the referral decision in this case, along with what the convening authority's testimony that he found those statements by Senator McCain to be inappropriate. Other questions? Counsel, have you completed your argument? Yes, Your Honor. Thank you very much. Mr. Fidel, you have five minutes for rebuttal. Thank you, Chief Justice. There are only two points I want to make. The first is that the highest value about which this court has to be concerned is public confidence in the administration of justice. Without public confidence, everybody involved in the administration of military justice will have been wasting our time. The second point is that whatever remedy the court fashions for the unlawful influence demonstrated on the record of this case, it must be a remedy that will achieve a deterrent effect. This must never be permitted 
will happen again. It might happen again, but if it happens again, the perpetrators of the UCI at that time will have to know that they, they will be deprived of the political benefits, the ill-gotten gains of their efforts to meddle in the administration of justice. Thank you very much. If the court has no further questions, we rest. Any judge have any questions for Mr. Fidel? If not, thank you. Uh, the court thanks counsel for both sides. The case is now submitted, and the court is in recess until 09.30 tomorrow. Thank you.